History This Week, August 18, 1920. I'm Sally Helm. In the third row of the legislative chamber in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a young man with a red rose pinned to his lapel, Harry Byrne. He's the youngest state legislator in the room, just 24 years old. And he's about to take a vote on an issue of national importance. A constitutional amendment, the 19th. It says, quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. By this summer, 1920, 35 states have ratified this women's suffrage amendment. But progress has stalled. The amendment just needs one more yes. It needs Tennessee. But frankly, things in Nashville are not looking good. The opposition, both men and women, are organized and vocal. Women belong in the home, they say. Letting them vote would lead to ruin. That day at the Capitol, the factions are very obvious. People are wearing their positions right on their lapels. The suffs, who support the women's suffrage amendment, wear a yellow rose. The antis wear a red one. Harry Byrne has marked himself as an anti. The majority of his constituents are against the amendment, and Byrne is up for re-election in a matter of months. But, unbeknownst to the other antis sitting all around him, Byrne has something in his breast pocket, just inches from that red rose. A letter from his mother. Feb Byrne was pro-suffrage. And in this recent letter, among pages of family news, she'd slipped in a few lines about the 19th Amendment. Hooray and vote for suffrage, she said. Be a good boy. Byrne is sitting with that letter in his pocket when the speaker finally calls a vote on the amendment. And when they call Byrne's name, he says, I a surprise vote in favor of the 19th Amendment. And that is all the amendment needs, not just for ratification in Tennessee, but to make it the law of the land for the entire country. It is such a twist ending that it's tempting to call that the end of the story. But actually, it's more like an important stop in the middle. Millions of women are voting before 1920. Millions of women get to vote because of 1920. And millions of women still aren't voting after 1920. Today, a hundred years after the passage of the 19th Amendment, we ask, what did the fight for women's suffrage look like? And what does this story tell us about how fragile voting rights still are? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Professor Lisa Tatro of Carnegie Mellon is having a big year. She's a women's suffrage expert, and this is a big centennial, 100 years since the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And Tetro says, the narrative we all know about women's suffrage is way simplified. She's trying to bring back the complexity. Women's lives are so radically different from one another that the story of when women began requesting the vote has a million different beginnings. We picked one. Let's start with the Constitution. It's an excellent place to start. Does the Constitution give us the right to vote? It sure does not. No. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that any citizen, male or female, has the right to vote. In fact, the founders deliberately did not say that. Remember, they were creating a republic, not a direct democracy. And in fact... They were skeptical of the idea of the masses being involved in governing. And many, many states had their own ideas about how this ought to be governed. And there was also suspicion about creating a kind of centralized power. So they left the specifics of voting rules up to the states. The states decide who gets to participate. And they end up creating all kinds of restrictions. If you don't create a right to vote, then you can put all kinds of limits in place at the state level, saying you have to be male, you have to be white, you have to be property-owning, you have to be over the age of, you have lived in the state for. And right from the beginning, there are women saying, we should get to vote. Free white women, particularly elite free white women, Abigail Adams being the most famous, writing her husband and saying, in this new government you are creating, give women a voice in the laws in which they are being asked to abide by. Abigail Adams has this famous line in a letter to her husband, John. Remember the ladies. And actually, one state in the Union did remember the ladies. New Jersey's 1776 constitution did not bar voters on account of race or sex. It said anyone who lived in the state, was of age, and owned property could vote. That meant that some women, mostly wealthy widows, and some African-American men actually cast ballots in New Jersey. Until New Jersey revised its constitution. Their 1807 constitution says that you have to be white and male. At that point, that's the rule in all the states. In the early 1800s, a voter is a white man with property. But slowly, white men without property start winning voting rights. Eventually, they can vote in every state. And as this happens... For a lot of white women, they're like, why aren't we being made voters? And so that becomes a fight they start to take up. That fight for the vote came in the wake of other women's activism. There's anti-slavery, there's temperance, the campaign against alcohol and others. And as women go out into the public and fight for these reforms, they're told, you are unsexing yourself, which is actually how they put it. You're violating your passive domestic roles as women. That activism and the backlash against it help spark a women's rights movement. And that women's rights movement 
is populated by all kinds of different people, black, white, um, male, female, and they start coming up with a whole roster of demands. The right to divorce, equal pay, access to education, and suffrage. But that was just one of the asks. We think um, the suffrage movement is really dominating all women's rights activism in this period, and it's actually not true. Especially for non-white women in the movement, voting wasn't the only priority. Their women's rights activism involved a whole host of different issues. There were indigenous women who were, you know, trying to stave off colonization and genocide. So the right to vote wasn't a big uh, priority for them. And then there were lots and lots of African-American women who, if free, supported certainly all of those things, but felt like there was a much larger evil at, at play, which was slavery. The abolition movement and the women's rights movement are really closely connected. A lot of women are fighting for both. And this alliance remains through the end of the Civil War. What happens after the American Civil War, the Feminist Abolitionist Coalition gets together and says, okay, we've achieved emancipation. Now we want voting rights for African Americans and women. And they look to the Constitution. In the aftermath of the war, Congress passes the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. And the 14th Amendment, which establishes birthright citizenship and equal protection under the laws. And these activists want the 15th Amendment to basically add a right to vote to the Constitution, provide universal suffrage, so that women and African-American men can vote. Then they won't have to go state by state to change the laws. But in the end... Congress says, we're going to pass the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and say, we grant voting rights to Black men, but we're not going to include women. Women are angry, including two feminist leaders you may have heard of, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Stanton gets up at the 1869 Convention of the American Equal Rights Association and uses racist language, saying that uneducated men of color and immigrants would not be capable of understanding American democracy and therefore should not be voting over educated white womanhood, who they obviously see as superior. Another leading member of that organization is Frederick Douglass, who was the most prominent African-American statesman at the time. After their racist tirade, Stanton and Anthony they get in a huge fight with Frederick Douglass, and they, they leave, they bolt from the organization and go form the first National Women's Suffrage Association. And that break shocks most of their allies, who just can't believe Stanton and Anthony's stance. And they go off and form a rival organization called the American Women's Suffrage Association. And then the two are vying for leadership of the movement. Stanton and Anthony and Douglass had long been allies. Douglas and Stanton had been at the now-famous Seneca Falls Convention together years earlier, in 1848. Douglas had long been a vehement supporter of women's suffrage. And now, despite that... When Frederick Douglass asks for his co-workers' support for the 15th Amendment, which was, as he put it, necessary for life as African Americans were battling vigilante violence across the South and being hung from lampposts, as he put it, Stanton and Anthony say, no, we won't support you. 
Frederick Douglass would, for the rest of his life, support women's voting. And it really sets the movement on an entirely new direction, whereby at least the Stanton and Anthony branch of the movement is really divorced from considering racial justice as part of the overall agenda. After this split, Stanton and Anthony's organization keeps pushing for federal intervention in voting. In fact, they even try out an argument that the 14th Amendment already enfranchised women. They bring this to the Supreme Court and argue that voting is a fundamental right of citizenship. Women are citizens, so they should be able to vote. All citizens should. But in 1875, the Supreme Court says, no, voting is not a right. It's a privilege. Meanwhile, other women's rights activists are working at the state level. And they actually see some gains. In 1869, Wyoming says, okay, women can vote. Colorado follows in 1893, and Utah and Idaho in 1896. But at the same time that Western states are enfranchising women, many other states are putting in place new obstacles to voting. After the ratification of the 15th Amendment, states can no longer discriminate on the basis of race. And Black men register and vote in huge numbers. Black men are elected to local and federal office. But in 1890, some states, especially in the South, begin to put new barriers in their way. Things like literacy tests, poll taxes. This affects anyone in the country who's poor, but it's particularly targeted at Black men. And on top of that, when they do try to vote, Black men often have to contend with vigilante violence at the polls. So through all these means, they are losing the right to vote. And so Black women who care about voting rights realize once again that they can't just be focusing on the vote for women. They have to take a broad approach. The activist Ida B. Wells starts leading anti-lynching campaigns in Memphis and then in Chicago. Mary Church Terrell, one of the few Black women of the time to earn a college degree, leads a group called the National Association of Colored Women. She will, along with W.E.B. Du Bois and others, start to demand voting not just for Black women, but also for Black men who have since lost the right to vote. So women of color are organizing on their own terms. And those women will dip in and out of white women's suffrage organizing, mostly to try to leverage white women's social and cultural power Simultaneously, white women have sort of consolidated their organizing power into a group called the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, fighting, as the name suggests, for suffrage. That's their ask. In 1900, NASA appoints a new head, Carrie Chapman Catt. She was a kind of prim Victorian woman who ran a calculated campaign where we're going to sort of carefully lay groundwork, try to change people's minds by pleasing them. Kat thinks they should focus on winning states individually, rather than fighting for a federal amendment. After all, some states have already allowed women to vote. And she figures, eventually, there'll be a domino effect. As more and more women vote state by state, people will get used to it. And eventually, women will be able to vote everywhere. But this incremental approach doesn't sit well with everyone in Nassau. 
the young women inside that organization who are trained on British militants and who are much more impatient and are not interested in doing the kind of currying the favor of the politicians. Their leader is an American woman named Alice Paul. She was extremely dogged. She had more determination than most folks. She was somewhat authoritarian, but she liked very much to kind of be back behind and kind of orchestrating things. She didn't necessarily like to be on the front lines. Alice Paul is going to take a very different approach. She thinks, let's go for the jugular, a federal amendment. Put the pressure on these politicians. Paul and Kat, they don't really get along. They despise each other. (laughs) I mean, really despise each other. By the 1910s, these factions will begin to take to the streets. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. By 1910, several Western states are letting women vote. Opponents of women's suffrage had been saying for years that women voting would lead to ruin. It would be the end of the American family because it would put women out of the domestic sphere into the public sphere. And the end of the American family would be the end of American civilization. And it would ruin the harmony of society. It's not just men saying this. There were many, many women who opposed voting because they said... I don't want to leave, you know, my at least ideologically, you know, happy, peaceful sphere. There are political cartoons of women wearing pants, smoking cigars, of a man wearing a button that said, Mr. Suffer Yet, while he washes clothes and a baby cries. But women were voting by the millions in the West, and people started to see society wasn't falling apart. So by the 1910s, the suffrage movement is picking up. It sort of becomes hip, in vogue. Some non-Western states begin to allow women's suffrage, or at least partial suffrage. Like in Illinois, women can vote in municipal elections. So Ida B. Wells, a Black woman, is voting in Chicago in 1913. um, And she's organizing Black women to try to change the electoral landscape and the political landscape of Chicago. And they elect the first Black alder person uh, in Chicago, Oscar de Priest. Meanwhile, Alice Paul is pushing for an amendment. And her tactics are getting more and more theatrical. In 1913, she and a fellow organizer, Lucy Burns, decide to organize a mass peaceful march in Washington, D.C. 
the first of its kind. And Alice Paul? She has a sneaky card up her sleeve, which is that she wants to hold it on the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Because Woodrow Wilson refused to come out in support of suffrage. So she thought, let's upstage his inauguration and let him know that we're going to make suffrage a front page issue for him. So Paul and Burns get to work, campaigning, raising money, recruiting women to march. And in this organizing process, you see the long-standing racial divisions in the women's movement. A group of white women come to Alice Paul and say, we can't have black women in this march. It would ruin our chances of getting white voters on our side. Alice Paul says to please kind of white racism, women of color are going to have to march at the back of the parade or not march at all. And Ida B. Wells very famously says, I refuse. If you make that choice now, you are throwing justice under the bus. But Alice Paul doesn't change her decision. On the day of the march, she tells women of color to march at the back. But they don't stand for it. Ida B. Wells, for example, famously marches in the middle of the parade with fellow women from Illinois. Mary Church Terrell marches with women from Howard University's Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And eventually thousands of women from across the country come and they parade through the streets of Washington, D.C. I think even Alice Paul couldn't have imagined how massive and momentous this parade was going to be when she first conceived of it. When Woodrow Wilson arrives at a train station in D.C. on the eve of his inauguration, expecting crowds of people, it's empty. Everyone is at the march. A carriage pulled by two horses makes its way down the street with a large sign that says, We demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising women of this country. Crowds have gathered to watch. But they're not all in support. And the pictures are arresting when you see it because there are just so many um, men surrounding these women in the street. And very quickly the parade goes south. Some of the men watching begin to charge the women in the street. Attacking these women, pulling their signs down, throwing them down. And eventually, you know, a hundred some women are sent to the hospital. The police, meanwhile, say, you know, you're behaving unladylike by being in the streets. And so we're not even going to protect you. You've lost your right to protection as white women by abdicating your responsibility for being domestic. Paul and Burns see this as a success. Alice Paul's delighted because she has front page press, right? And people were horrified, partly because women of color are enduring this kind of violence and worse all the time. But when good upstanding white women are attacked, they're offended. And so many white Americans, some I'm sure thought they had what coming to them, but others were sort of like, whoa, that's not acceptable. And it started to recruit a lot of Americans toward the idea that what these women were demanding was reasonable and they shouldn't be subject to such unreasonable treatment. After the march, Alice Paul continues her bold tactics. She will though set up picketing of the White House. This was not something people did either. You didn't go picket the White House. And they would hold signs that said, you know, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And they would stand there every day, all day, not saying anything. And Woodrow Wilson's annoyed, but they're entirely within their constitutional rights to be there. But then the U.S. enters World War I. And you don't pick at a wartime president, right? And a lot of people say, you have to stop now. That's unpatriotic, including Carrie Chapman Catt. And Alice Paul says no. Paul and her allies keep picketing. 
eventually, Wilson has had enough. And so he has him arrested on obstructing traffic, which is clearly, you know, a bogus charge. And these women are clearly political prisoners, which we're not supposed to have in the United States. They refuse to pay their fines. They go to jail. They start a hunger strike. They are force fed where you have tubes slid down your throats and your nose and they pour in eggs and milk. Alice Paul and many of these women would have digestive issues for the rest of their lives. And that again, that kind of brutality against women that we don't expect to suffer brutality really starts to turn public opinion as well. But not everyone thinks this is a good plan. The National Association of Colored Women won't publicly support it, and neither will Nassau. Carrie Chapman Catt was quite worried that Alice Paul was going to tank the entire movement. Catt has been working her quieter, calculated strategy, trying to get Woodrow Wilson's ear, trying to enfranchise women in states one by one, and by this point, also pushing for a federal amendment. The 19th. But as it worked out, the two strategies really were compatible in all kinds of ways because Alice Paula was got publicity and attention and garnered, I think, changes of heart, whereas Carrie Chapman Catt really did the groundwork that was necessary. Without those two things, there really, I don't think it, there would have been victory for the 19th Amendment. By 1918, the proposed 19th Amendment has been languishing in Congress for years. On rare occasions, they'll take it up and reject it. To pass an amendment, you need two-thirds of the House and the Senate, and you need three-quarters of the states to ratify. In 1918, the 19th Amendment fails in the Senate by two votes. That same year, though, Carrie Chapman Catt has a private meeting with Woodrow Wilson. We don't know what was said, but soon after that, he comes out in support of women's suffrage. Plus, by 1918, more and more states have enfranchised women. California, Michigan, New York, many others. And in 1919, Congress takes up the amendment again. This time, it passes. Partly thanks to women in the states where they could vote, helping send pro-suffrage legislators to Congress. So now the amendment goes to the states for ratification. They support, they support, they support. It looks like ratification is going to fly through and then it stops, like hard stop. And no states will take it up and it just languishes and languishes. And people think, oh no, what is going to happen? They need one more state. And then Tennessee decides to take it up expressly to denounce it. So everyone's sure it's going to fail in Tennessee. The vote is scheduled for August 18, 1920. And people descend on Tennessee. Everybody pours in. People who oppose it, the suffragists themselves. And it is like a circus. And people are getting drunk. Women are inside the Capitol well past respectable hours with drunk men. And then the vote happens. And it seems pretty clear it's not going to pass. But then... I mean, you just can't write drama better than this. Harry T. Byrne gets a letter from his mother. Hooray and vote for suffrage. She tells him to, quote, be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. And with his mother's admonishment, Harry T. Byrne changes his vote, breaks a tie, and it wins by two vote. But Harry T. Byrne's vote was sufficient to put it over the edge. And with that, the amendment is ratified. And it is, I mean, talk about a nail-biting cinematic finish. 
suffragists across America celebrate. And in the 1920 election, many women cast their first ballots. But some women still can't. You can be a Black woman in Illinois and vote, but you can be a Black woman in Mississippi and not vote. Because, Tetro says... The 19th Amendment does not say women have a right to vote. It just says states can't discriminate in voting on the basis of sex. And the same poll taxes and literacy tests that have barred Black men from voting now bar Black women from voting. So Black women support the amendment um, heavily, but they don't support it as sufficient, right? They're like, this is such a small piece of what needs to happen. Still, Black women do see this amendment as an opportunity to try and expand the franchise, to do what the 15th Amendment didn't. And they show up en masse in the South and start registering to vote. And the white South is freaked out. And Black men are showing up with them. And they're like, we are going to now reassert our right to vote. But then there's vigilante violence to contend with. And so many, many Black women are effectively disenfranchised. And then, at the same time, the United States had wacky citizenship laws, which ensnared other women. Citizenship is a requirement for voting. And several groups were barred from becoming citizens for decades, like Native Americans and Chinese immigrants. For decades after the 19th Amendment is passed, people of color continue to fight for the right to vote. In the 1950s and 60s, Black men and women lead the civil rights movement and demand to be seen and treated as full citizens. As part of that fight came the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This basically helped the federal government fight against state barriers to suffrage. I would say the Voting Rights Act really made America a truly meaningful democracy in the ways that most people finally got access to the vote. African-American voting registration numbers, which the White South had successfully diminished to, you know, 1 to 2 percent, skyrocket immediately to 65 to 85 percent. But Lisa Tetro reminds us, voting is not an unconditional right in the Constitution. And so there are still many ways that suffrage can be curtailed, for women or for anyone. The tragedy is that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 in the Shelby County v. Holder decision. States can now change voter eligibility rules without as much oversight by the federal government. And the states are now back in probably the largest wave of voter discrimination since the 19th end of the 20th century. So the story is ongoing, and it shows us without citizens demanding and achieving a right to vote, we will have it taken away from us repeatedly. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.